Hello everybody, Stephen Gray here again. It's been a while since I did one of these. It's now January 2023, and I'm continuing with this series of interviews with leading influencers in fields related to psychedelics and consciousness transformation with the overarching uh, mission, you might say, to uh, uh, make some contribution toward a planet that's in, you might say, dire need of uh, a consciousness transformation for the generations to come. And uh, today uh, I have a very interesting person that I, uh, I'm, I'm going to interview and she's with me now and I'm just going to introduce her first with some short text. Her name is uh, Dominique Morisano. Um, Dr. Morisano is a clinical psychologist and adjunct professor at the University of Toronto and University of Ottawa. She has received extensive training in psychedelic therapies from multiple institutions, including the Certificate in Psychedelic Assisted Therapies and Research Program at the California Institute for Integral Studies. She served in executive leadership in, at the psychedelic therapy company Field Trip Health for two years and currently runs a trauma forward slash addiction focused private practice in both Toronto and New York City. Uh, Dominique also acts as an advisor, trainer, and consultant for several institutions in the psychedelic therapy space and teaches in the Psychedelics and Spirituality Micro Program at the University of Ottawa. As well, she's a co-founder and chair of the board of nonprofit psychedelics R2R, which was behind the 2022 Hybrid Psychedelics Research Conference from Research to Reality, Global Summit on Psychedelic Assisted Therapies and Medicine. And that, by the way, was a condensed uh, um, uh, resume or bio for Dominique. She's, I don't know how she's done all this in the amount of time she's had on planet Earth, but nonetheless, welcome, Dominique. Thanks. Yeah. I'm older than I look. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you look great. And just like your picture, by the way. Um, and... Um, so let's let's just get right into it. Uh, and you know, this is a question that you probably get asked occasionally if you do interviews, but I always find it interesting anyway. And and you know, so so you know, the field you're in is not necessarily one that a lot of people in the same field would pursue in terms of you know going toward uh, the use of psychedelics and related medicines. And so, may I ask you, what led you in that direction? Sure. Um... Well, back in about 2008, um, I was an addiction researcher uh, and I was doing a postdoctoral fellowship in addiction psychiatry. And I was at a conference called the College on Problems of Drug Dependence. And there I met uh, a bunch of psychedelics researchers like Matt Johnson and, um, and Chad Riesig, who uh, ended up at FDA eventually. Um, and I, I really connected, uh, with that group at Johns Hopkins university and we became good friends and I was studying cannabis and alcohol, um, and really had at that time, not much interest in moving over to psychedelics, but they were always trying to kind of convince me that that was the place to go. And then in 2013, I was working as a scientist at the center for addiction and mental health in Toronto and my boss told me he was retiring early. Uh, this was Brian Rush uh, to go work on ayahuasca research. And I said, what? Ayahuasca <laughs> research? What is that? You know, I wasn't even, I hadn't even heard of ayahuasca before. And I started looking into it and I said, wow, what? All of my friends are starting to research uh, these psychedelics. And then um, I will say that, you know, I was, um, working with a lot of clients with trauma and addiction issues and a lot of people would get better. You know, a lot of people would get, I would say even a hundred percent better. Um, but there was also a good, uh, I would say chunk of clients that would get to about 90%, like 85%, 90% and seemed to plateau. Like we could go so far, but we couldn't, you know, whether it took one year, six months, two years, three years, like we kind of hit that top edge. And um, I was thinking about how much time, like, and how much struggle uh, people were experiencing, and and the the data around psychedelics were starting to come out around how they impacted, you know, depression and cancer, and you know, smoking cessation rates, and uh, all of these things. And I started to think maybe this is something that um, would be interesting or useful for clients like mine. Um, and at the same time. 
uh, I was also, I had also been in, um, uh, a series of, uh, accidents, like, you know, car accidents, uh, like mm. and a series of physical traumas myself. And I had, I was looking, you know, I'd been doing all kinds of treatment for years, but was looking for solutions also for myself as, you know, how I would move through that period, uh, in my life. And, um, uh, you know, basically, yeah, started to find that maybe psychedelics were going to help me a little bit. Um, and so I started reading lots of research, you know, doing all the research I could, could do around the subject. Um, and then in 2018, I was, uh, uh, Matt Johnson had recommended I read, uh, my, this Michael Pollan book. I read it and I said, learned about CIS and as that there was this whole school program for this area. And I said, that's it. I, that's what I'm doing. I'm going back to school, you know? So, um, and, uh, yeah, that kind of, once I made that decision, everything just started kind of flowing. Um, so, uh, you were, I, I did want to ask you about cannabis though, because, uh, um, that's been something I think, you know, that's been a focus of mine, uh, with my book, cannabis and spirituality, et cetera, et cetera. And you've uh, focused on that as well. And you talked about you've uh, focused on cannabis dependency and so on. And I'm just wondering if you can say some things about, I don't know, just a generally how you, you know, what do you see are the pros and cons of, of, of cannabis use uh, in general uh, and maybe different ways of using it or that sort of thing? Yeah, I would say, um, I would say I got into working with cannabis dependence um, and research at Center for Addiction Mental Health probably in about 2006. Um, and I was seeing a lot of, I was working in the youth addiction program and um, was seeing a lot of kids coming in with uh, pretty severe dependence issues with cannabis. So um, sm basically smoking a lot, a lot from morning till night. Um, and kind of drowning out their existence, you know, not really being present in day-to-day -day life. And I think that's, um, you know, I think, so, so I am like, I personally am not anti-cannabis. Like I am, uh, you know, a person that sees it as a beautiful plant, you know, um, that, uh, unfortunately causes, uh, pretty serious problems for about 10% of people that use it. That seems to be what the research shows. Uh, and so for those people, for those 10%, um, it can do real, it can wreak real havoc, um, on their lives. And I've seen people go into bankruptcy, believe it or not, uh, from, um, running out of money, needing to still, um, to still have, have it every day and, um, and really impacting motivation, um, goal setting, future oriented thinking, decision-making, emotional you know, regulation, like kind of blunting emotions, mm -hmm. um, and fogging things, fogging things up. Um, and so I, I was interested in, um, helping people, you know, break free, kind of reduce harm. The harm is related to their use of cannabis and see if they could, um, you know, depending on what, what would work for them, whether they would take it out of their life completely or find a more, um, let's say, functional way to use it in their life. Mm. Um, so I, I think that there's been a lot of interesting research about cannabis for pain, you know, for neuropathic pain, um, for um, epilepsy, you know, for for a lot of different conditions. Um, I'm, I know that there's growing, like people are researching it all the time. Um, you know, I was looking at potential cognitive impacts um, in people with schizophrenia, because there was an inordinate amount of uh folks with schizophrenia that were using uh cannabis and it uh and we were we were trying to see if it made things worse or better you know mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean in terms of cannabis in general um you know i would say it's a neutral it's a neutral substance you know mm -hmm. uh, it's a neutral plant right and yeah. you can go this way with it or you can go that way with it and um you know, I help the people that go that way. Um, and the people that go this way don't need my help. Right. Um, you know, yeah. no, <laughs> and good. so, yeah, that's kind of how I see it. 
So I don't want to get the thank you. I don't want to get too waylaid on on cannabis because we have other important things I want to ask you about. But I can't help but ask this anyway because it's a curiosity to me. Um, <clears throat> I know people who uh, um, smoke, you know, two three times a day and are extremely functional. Um, but mm -hmm. I have my doubts about that. Um, it's n never mm -hmm. something I've wanted to do, except maybe when I was twenty for a year or two, um, uh, mm -hmm. and. And it uh, didn't work all that well for me even then to do that. Um, uh, so, but some of these people seem to be quite high functioning. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering to me, my, my, if I had a, a bias or a, an opinion about that, I'd think, well, that's fine. But are you potentially just treating using cannabis in a palliative way and um, in a sense, ignoring issues that you might if you're really on the spiritual path, so to speak, um, uh, want to dig into more. Uh, so I don't know, do you have, uh, I know you, you're obviously focused on, you know, the problematic use of cannabis, but have you seen perhaps just in general, uh, people that are able to use cannabis in a daily way, uh, in a positive way, or how, what do you, what's your take on that? Um, well, What's interesting about being a psychologist is that, you know, you get, you don't get to see the, the people that are doing so well no. that much, right? Like you get the, you get the people with problems, but, you know, I can say that, um, you know, I think a lot about cannabis and, and one of, you know, this is probably controversial to say, but like one of my teach my teachers in Peru, uh, an ayahuasca teacher, Ricardo Emringo, uh, he, uh, you know, apparently he said, um, you know, marijuana takes you to the spiritual gates, but it doesn't let you in, you know, mm. um, and you know that's that that's his view that you know that he, um, he you know he he tries to help people um, get off of uh, uh, you know cannabis use, except in a traditional uh, you know, medicinal, like kind of dieta context, um, uh, like with proper prayer and, um, you know, uh, rituals around, around mm. that use. Um, I think that, you know, I see a lot of people that come in and they, they say, oh, this is my problem. This is my problem. This is my problem. This is my problem, this problem. And then at the end of the session, they're like, oh, by the way, um, <laughs> I also smoke weed every day. Um, I just wanted to mention that. And I said, oh, is that, is that why you came to me? You know, because um, you know that that's what I was one of what one of the things I'm I'm known to be working with. And they said, "Oh yeah, kind of." And I said, "Oh, is that something that you want to work with?" And usually they say, "I don't know. I don't know. I think I function pretty well, but I'm not sure it's something I'd like to explore." And so I think that you know, for a lot of people, um, it is a coping skill. You know, it is a harm reduction technique. I mean, if you're if you're going to be doing that versus drinking alcohol, you know. Oh, every night, or you're going to be doing that versus using opiates uh, frequently. Well, that is certainly a great thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I just think it, it really depends on the person. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people exist that have great experiences using cannabis every day with no issues, um, but I uh, um, haven't met them mm, personally, right. you know? Yeah. Sure. Um, and, uh, and so, and I, I will say that even my clients that say, I want to work on all these things, but I don't want to work on cannabis. That's not the issue. Um, a lot of them eventually come to work on their cannabis use. Yeah, um, that's, that's good. Well, again, I don't want to, you know, spend too much of our precious time here on that theme, but I, I, I have known people that, well, one guy in particular, I remember who was really big on you know, I think he referred to himself as a wake and bake kind of guy. And, uh, mm -hmm. and he was very active in his life. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a coach lock kind of guy at all. But mm -hmm. uh, he did, he did go cold turkey at one point. And I asked him, mm -hmm. you know, what he noticed. He said, everything got clearer. I thought that yeah. was very interesting. Yeah. That's what people tend to say is like the veil is lifted. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Which is hard, which is hard. Right. And if you're not ready for that veil to lift, like if you don't have other coping skills, you don't have other ways of taking care of yourself, then I say put the veil back down. Right. Because mm -hmm. um, we, you know, usually when I work with people with cannabis, we don't start day one working on cannabis. Right. I'm working at least for usually a month or two 
um, with them on other things like exercise, like um, finding good social supports, like, you know, having good sleep, good self-care, things like that before we address that. Because if you lift the veil and you're not able to deal with what comes out or you're, you're, you're not able to, you know, cope with what you see, mm-hmm. well, then that's going to throw you into a deeper spin. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I try to help people have the skills to lift the veil and then work with what they see rather than, you know, put the veil back down again. But if it's not the time, it's not the time. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. So actually, I'm glad we're talking about that because it is related to addiction and dependency in that sense. Uh, and uh, from my point of view, uh, in certain contexts, used certain way, cannabis should be considered part of the psychedelic pantheon, even though it's not mm-hmm. technically a psychedelic and doesn't act on the mm-hmm. 5-HT2A receptors, etc. Um, uh, so, but then getting into the you know, normally considered psychedelics, the so-called major ones, I guess you could say, uh, you focused on them in trauma and addiction work uh, in your studies mm-hmm. and so on and advocacy, et cetera, et cetera. And so can you talk uh, in, perhaps in a somewhat general way about how psychedelics can help in how, how they are used in, uh, for those purposes? Sure. I mean, I can speak to the extent of, you know, uh, what I know, um, but you know, cause I'm an addiction psychologist. So I work, I've been working with addiction for uh, about 17 years without psychedelics. And maybe uh, a couple of years ago I started working and this isn't a classical psychedelic, but um, with uh, ketamine um, with some substance use issues, like related to alcohol and cannabis. Um, and, uh, you know, interestingly, even though it wasn't the main goal of that work, you know, the, the folks I was working with, I did have some issues in those areas. It, it became immediately apparent how effective it was at impacting those things. Like, you know, I might have a, I, I, I had a session um, where in the middle of the session, someone said, I hate alcohol. I hate alcohol. The very mm-hmm. first session. And, you know, otherwise was having a very, psychedelic experience, but just came out. I hate out. I said, Oh, okay. I'm going to write that down. What do you hate about it? Everything, everything. I hate everything about it. It's a poison. Okay. And then kind of went back in and later we talked about it and, you know, they were able to cut down their drinking. Oh my gosh. From I think like 35 a week to two a week. And those effects sustained for, you know, the preceding eight months, you know, that we were working together um, I was working with someone for several years without any kind of psychedelic, um, support, uh, just in regular psychotherapy and, on, and a very serious cannabis dependence. And, um, they had only ever been able to go, you know, four to six months without, uh, cannabis at a time. Um, that was the longest stint in like about seven years. Um, and, first day after the ketamine session quit um after the first ketamine session like in a series of six um and it's been about yeah five months since then it hasn't returned and um things have just started shifting in in their life and you know i i would say that in general um it's still it's still somewhat mysterious to me how it's so effective so quickly. Uh, but you know, I can say that people are able to see themselves really clearly Mm. and it's like, they're able to see, you know, how they're caring for themselves, what this thing is doing to them. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on Ibogaine, um, or working with opiates. Um, that's not my area. Um, you know, my, the main addictions that I've been working with, like over the years are cocaine, alcohol, and cannabis. Um, you know, I know that, uh, there's definitely potential for psilocybin, you know, uh, Matt Johnson's done those studies at Johns Hopkins with cigarette smoking, like showing wild quit rates that you never see, um, with any other tool like nicotine patches or gum or, you know, um, vaping or anything like that. Um, I think some upwards of 70% quit rates, you know, after a year, which is absolutely unheard of. Um, And so I think it's something that we have to start really researching, exploring. Um, I know Elias Dakwar um, was doing work on with ketamine and uh, cocaine and alcohol and was showing efficacy. So we don't have the protocols yet, but, um, but I think this is a, 
going to be, if people put the time and the money into it, if people actually work on this, because I think often, you know, my feeling is that often like addiction is one of those things that's left behind in care and service uh, money, you know, and the money that, mm -hmm. that people put into the, the public health system. It's like, well, why do, you know, there's a lot of uh, judgment and um, I think bias about people struggling with addictions. Uh, people aren't able to look at all the societal factors, traumas, intergenerational traumas that cause someone to turn, you know, towards a plant or a substance, you know, um, to cope and get through life. You know, um, you know, I, I really see uh, substance use as a coping skill, you know, in in the addictive sense, you know, um, and and have no judgments about it. Some of the most interesting, creative, smart uh, people I've ever met in my life have been clients I've worked with with addiction issues, which is part of why I got so interested in working in that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes people, you know, the, the the kind of people you're you're just referred to are um, uh, more sensitive in a way than a lot of people, and so they have more in it, inner stuff to deal with in a certain way, right? Um, does that make sense? Uh, you know, okay, so let me tell you yeah, a quick story. I'm supposed I, to be interviewing yeah. you here, but um, uh, it's okay. Have you ever heard of Mayor Baba? No. Mayor Baba was a was fairly popular guru. I guess you could call him from India um, uh, in the late '60s and '70s. He had followers in the West and so on. And one of the stories he told <clears throat> was that uh, at a certain point of his life, he undertook to find the people. He called them musts. Um, he said they were people who were, uh, you know, this obviously implies accepting uh, the principle or the idea of uh, reincarnation. And uh, so uh, uh, Mayor Baba um, had seen people around India that he felt were really advanced spiritually, but had fallen on barren ground, uh, the kind of things that you were just talking about, inter intergenerational trauma, whatever, um, yeah. and, uh, and they couldn't handle it. And so they'd kind of gone crazy, so to speak. And he took it yeah. upon himself to find these people and help bring them around to find out who they are. Uh, so that's uh, what I meant by, you know, the sensitives, you know, that sometimes have more to deal yeah. with than the average person. Um, that's beautiful. A, yeah. yeah. There was a, a, I'll just mention one other uh, source on this. Um, there was a guy named Ernest Becker who uh, wrote a mm -hmm. Pulitzer Prize winning novel called The Denial of Death back in the 70s. And um, oh. he, he said there's sort of sort of two kinds of people. He said there's the, the neurotics and the psychotics. He said the neurotics bite off less than they can chew and the psychotics bite off, bite off more than they can chew. <laughs> does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, I would say so, yeah. Avoiders versus going in head in, into life, yeah, and, mm. and all the realms, yeah. Um, I think that, you know, I often see... You know, I was really interested when I was younger in working with um, people that were kind of gifted underachievers, if that makes any sense. So, mm -hmm. you know, people that were really, really, really bright, uh, but kind of got paralyzed uh, by that brightness. Um, mm -hmm. And so instead kind of turned inward, kind of turned inside, um, didn't want to disappoint people, were afraid of failure, afraid of success because, you know, maybe how would that change their image of, of afraid of not being able to sustain success, that kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was really interested in, you know, why some gifted people become really successful and why some gifted people, you know, I mean, end up on the streets really, you know, um, and like, what's the difference? What are the risk factors? What are the resilience factors? What are the societal factors and the cultural factors? Um, and I have found over the years, you know, working with all kinds of uh, people from all different backgrounds, ages, you know, cultures, um, that, you know, there is this, uh, that there can be this paralysis of uh potentiality, like being good at a lot of things and not knowing where to put your energy, um, not wanting to disappoint people, having a lot of expectations uh, from others and, um, and not knowing when to listen to themselves and when to listen to others and what they're supposed to do. And so, yeah, it ends up paralyzing them. And it's a lot easier um, 
to take a time out, you know, um, than to sometimes move forward with a particular path because yeah, uh, there's a lot of anxiety yeah, around it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, as you say that, I'm thinking of uh, people on, well, particularly the Asperger's spectrum, uh, autism being the autism spectrum? severe than, than that in general. But I know a couple of people um, that would identify as Asperger's and they're mm -hmm. incredibly bright with amazing brains, you know, um, but uh, have maybe not used that those abilities uh, in society as much as they might have because of the sort of social, you know, dysfunctions or, you know, issues around that for themselves, you know? Yeah. And like Asperger's is called high functioning autism now. Um, they, mm. cause they, um, I mean, it's anyway, there's a lot of controversy about that and the whole DSM five and everything and changing labels and things like that. But, um, yeah, I I would say, you know, um you know, people with autism, like high functioning autism have higher cognitive abilities um than average. Um and uh you know, there's different I would say there's different factors there, you know, related to social social difficulties and um you know, sometimes troubles with interpretations, things like that. Uh mm. it's a it's a it's a it's an overlapping category. I would say there's like, like I would say people with high functioning autism and gifted people overlap big yeah, time, like in a lot of similar traits and, and, and things like that. Yeah. Well, we're getting a little bit far afield from some of the main topics yeah. perhaps here, but that's okay. It's interesting to me yeah. anyway. Um, uh, but I'd actually like to go back to ketamine a bit for a moment, if you don't mind, sure. because, um, you yeah. know, it, 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 uh, it, it's going to be taking a, an increasingly larger, more present role in uh, treatment, yeah. I believe. Uh, and it has one distinct advantage, obviously, which is it's legal for appropriate it's medical legal. practitioners to use. And, and short. And, I was just going to say that's the other one. Yeah, that's 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 also convenient. So, um, uh, you know, you you in the same little um, kind of monologue a little while ago, you you uh, referenced uh, psilocybin and the cigarette, mm -hmm. you know, addiction issue, uh, and um, it. I kind of got the impression that the ketamine, ketamine and psych uh, psilocybin may be kind of doing a similar thing of. Uh, the way the what they're help how they're helping perhaps is by um functioning as truth serums they're showing people uh you know giving themselves a clear look at their life and um they they sort of decide they want to take care of themselves and they see this as a problem is it something hmm. like that i mean would would you say they yeah, function I, somewhat similarly for one thing in that regard i mean as you're talking it um, it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about earlier with cannabis, where when you like, like lifting the veil. So, you know, I think both ketamine and uh, mushrooms, like psilocybin mushrooms have the ability to lift the veil. Um, mm. But, but while the veil is lifted, you're in a state that is different than your everyday state. You know, you're in a state that may be calmer, maybe less anxious, um, maybe more open uh, to seeing what's underneath the veil um, and being able to look at it with a more, you know, kind of discerning, objective, uh, neutral mind um, than the mind uh, that you experience every day. Is that, does that make any sense? Like, mm -hmm. um, oh yeah, you know, of course, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, it's less scary to lift the veil, you know, mm -hmm. and start to look at things. It's more obvious. It's more clear, you know? Um, yeah. There's, I had, this is a story I don't often share, but, you know, I, um, back in, uh, 2008, I was in a major car accident. I was hit by a car on my bicycle and I, um, I was in the middle of my PhD dissertation writing. Like actually it was almost at the end. I was supposed to defend my dissertation in two months. Um, and I got a, uh, pr hit pretty badly. And, um, the day after I got, uh, my concussion, um, I couldn't do anything, um, physically. I was pretty much, uh, locked, uh, on the lying down on my couch. Um, but for some reason, my brain said, oh, it's time to finish your dissertation. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote for like two days straight. Um, and I finished my dissertation in two days that I had been kind of putting off, avoiding, uh, struggling with for the previous year. 
Um, and I sent it to my dissertation supervisor. He said, you know, a couple of sentences didn't make sense in there, but wow, that was pretty good. Like, <laughs> like you kind of did it. Mm. And I felt like what had happened with the concussion, um, and not that I'm comparing psychedelics to a concussion, but like, is that like something got knocked, something got kind of shut down, I think in my prefrontal cortex, you know, mm. where, you know, in the exact place that I got hit, uh, I think it was like right here. Um, and it allowed me to kind of move forward without anxiety, without fear, without perfectionism, without thinking through all of like kind of negging myself, you know, to all the, the potential ways of how I might mess up that manuscript. Um, and in the same way with psychedelics, it's like they just turn something off. They, they turn some switch off that allows you to see yourself, you know, without all of that chitter chatter, you know, mm. all of that uh, um, kind of negative chitter chatter and and to show you like a potential way forward you know um like through it yeah, yeah. the um they, they talk about um the quieting of the default mode network uh with psilocybin They're, they've studied that quite a bit right you know, it... yeah with all of them and like and i think you know there's been studies on the kind of dropping of the the default mode network and nate you know and like spending a lot of time in nature and meditation you know I think the I think the neuroscience is still pretty um speculative you know it's a it's a theory it's a model you know um but it's a great analogy you know for working with it in therapy you know I talk about it all the time it's like oh you're just you're on the super highway every day with ideas kind of running around it and when and you've got all this stuff from your past underneath the super highway that you don't have to think about or deal with. And, you know, when we're, you're on the psychedelics, all of a sudden it's like the super highway crumbles mm -hmm. and there you are face to face with everything, you know, old people, old memories, old things, but like, you're okay. You're safe, you know, mm -hmm. looking at all those things. And then you say who, okay, who, who what, you know, what am I going to, what am I going to work on today? What am I going to bring into my car? as I rebuild that highway, get back on the road and bring with me so I can kind of process it in day-to-day -day life. Nice yeah. metaphor. I like it. Um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, uh, so again, uh, sort of uh, comparing and contrasting perhaps somewhat uh, the psilocybin and the ketamine, uh, um, I, I have a fair amount of familiarity with most of the sort of quote major psychedelics, but I've never tried ketamine. So I don't know how it functions particularly other than what I'm hearing from people like you and others that I know about its, you know, sort of truth serum function in that way. So let me ask you this, um, in the yeah. Johns Hopkins work, like for example, mm -hmm. with end of life uh, patients, terminal cancer patients, mm -hmm. It seemed like a lot of, like they said, the people, you know, that a lot of those people changed their attitude about their situation dramatically, and they were the ones that had what they called the most mystical experiences. So, mm -hmm. uh, so, so, uh, it, it's, it's almost as if there's two streams of capabilities with some of these substances. One is the truth serum, more sort of narrowly, you might say, and the other one is that it shows you that you're you are in this um larger well largest you might say um environment that's like the eternal loving divine cosmos or whatever and so there mm -hmm. so people have a completely different perspective on who they are in that context and that changes them um so does ketamine have any of that or is it i mean i don't know what ketamine is it's not truly a psychedelic right well, I mean, it depends who you ask. Uh, I mean, you know, with the with the the nomenclature and the you know the specific uh, you know neurotransmitter actions, you know, it's not in a classical psychedelic uh, category according to the the researchers. But um, if you look, if you think about it in like the the casual everyday conversation sense, like people have real visions people mm. see things people you know <clears throat> experience things they have very transpersonal experiences they have you know um experiences where um they yeah become a different animal or a different person you know and really? kind of go through wow. yes 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 um i mean yeah i i will yeah absolutely and so uh it can be very profound. I mean, people, you know, people can, 
my my friend was telling me yesterday he was walking around Vancouver and he saw this poster on um, a kind of a, a poll and said, like, try 5-MeO DMT. Um, and there's all these bullet points. It's like, meet God, this, do this, do this, do this, you know, and, and <laughs> we were laughing. It's like, what has happened? <laughs> like, like landscape when you see a sign like that on the street, but um, it's like, oh, here you can meet God for only nine ninety nine. You know, oh. just come into my house, and you know, I know that's crazy. Um, yeah. But but yeah, I mean, people have experiences of you know meeting their version of what God is. You know, um, mm -hmm. in in ketamine, I can't say everyone does, and no. in fact, I can't even say most people do. I will say that in you know w with the clients that I've worked with um, with ketamine. <sighs> Some have had mystical experiences like um, in their sessions, like, well, mm. several, you know, um, mm. in that, tr in that kind of very scientific sense, you know, the, of, of like how it's defined by Johns Hopkins. Um, uh, some have had very, very extremely spiritual experiences. Um, I'm not sure actually in the cases where I've seen huge reductions in, in um, substance use behaviors that that has been present. Mm -hmm. Um, like it, with the clients I've worked with, I actually, they didn't have those experiences and they yeah, still, it still changed their substance use. So, you know, uh, it's something to research, you know, there's like so much research to be done on, on yeah. all of this. It's like, we're in the, we're in like the, almost like in the dark ages, we're like just hitting, you know, I, I, I cannot wait to see what kind of research comes out in the next hundred years. Well, I'm not going to be around for uh, a good chunk of that, but, yeah, but, but it's really exciting. I, yeah, I hope we, great. I hope we spend the time before we get kind of carried away by the tide of, um, of, uh, you know, what do they call it? vitriol is that was well, like it's like uh you know the, all of the every it's amazing everything's perfect oh it you know it's it's uh like you're guaranteed to have the most life-changing experience you've ever had you know there's a lot of propaganda you know around psychedelics they're amazing you know they can they can really help so many people um but you know they're not for everybody they can cause harms uh especially out of context like in the in a particular context um they can be used um in ways that increase the harms you know and so we have to be careful and and also like setting up expectations um you know for people that have been i mean occasionally yeah like someone comes in they've been struggling with depression for 20 years they've tried everything every antidepressant under the the sun you know and um they do a couple sessions of ketamine and all of a sudden it's like oh they're looking at everything differently oh you know things are able to start to move. They start to kind of see where, you know, taking care of themselves fits into their life, how maybe they can change their work-life balance, how maybe they can um, spend more time with people they love, you know, um, because the, the, the medicines like those, the ketamine, like um, psilocybin mushrooms, like LSD, you know, uh, you know, even 5-MeO-DMT, like these are the catalyst, catalysts for change. If they can spark you to change things in your life that aren't working for you, that are creating the life that you are currently in, that you are not feeling, you know, great. That's, that's the ticket, you know, but if you just take them and you have an amazing experience and then you go back to your regular life and you do things exactly as you did before, are you going to have a different life? Probably not. Are you going to have had a range of experiences that is different? Yeah, for sure. You know, might you have seen the light at one point? Yeah, you know, uh, but does it change anything about your life and the lives of the people around you? No, you know, so it's like, you've got to do something, you know, these, these are, you know, I see them as gifts, you know, uh, you know, uh, many in, indigenous peoples. I mean, these, these have been used in indigenous cultures for so many, so many years, um, you know, traditional cultures and seeing seeing these, you know, plants in particular as, you know, messengers of God as, or as God, or as gods themselves, you know, and spirits themselves. So they're, they're, they're teachers, you know, plant teachers, they're uh, medicine teachers, I guess, of how can we do things differently?
Absolutely. Well said. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and I agree completely about with everything you've said. Uh, um, and definitely the integration issue is a really important one. Uh, you know, I, I, I've had that same, you know, insider thought uh, numerous times that, you know, there seem to be people that are around, around who have perhaps taken ayahuasca a hundred or more times and haven't really fundamentally changed. Uh, you know, there's, you definitely have to find out how to bring that back into the daily walk. Uh, I'd still like to ask more about some of the, some of the specific medicines again. So I, um, I don't know how I'm going to get enough questions in in the time we have allotted, but uh, because you, you know so much about so many of these things. Uh, but I'd like to explore, okay, so let's try this one first. Um, you haven't mentioned MDMA yet. Um, have you worked mm -hmm. with it and how do you see it uh, going forward and how, you know, its efficacy, et cetera. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trained in MDMA therapy, you know, from MAPS. Uh, um, it was part of my training at CIS. Um, but no, I haven't worked with it um, in uh, like in any of the research studies, uh, basically because there haven't been any that I could <laughs> participate in working on um right yeah in toronto there was there's been a couple in toronto one on eating disorders which is not something that is an area of expertise for me and one on couples which um i'm a i'm a child adolescent and adult psychologist but i don't do couples therapy um so unfortunately like wrong place wrong time uh for being a part of that research but i have a lot of uh, colleagues and friends that are doing mdma research as part of their you know they're the therapists on the map studies um, which mm -hmm. is the bulk of what's being done legally in that realm right now um and you know i would say that they are reporting um tremendous shifts you know in a lot of the clients that they work with uh but they're they're also taking real care you know in uh, working with those clients and Mm -hmm. maybe doing extra follow-ups, you know, extra kind of, uh, you know, work to ensure that those folks are, are well when they're leaving. Um, I think MDMA is uh, a medicine that I want to keep learning about uh, because it seems to have such positive effects for so many people. Um, I mean, I've had clients that have come into me and said, you know, um, everything changed for me when I did MDMA once, you know, several clients actually, you know, I just, mm -hmm. all of a sudden I accepted myself. I loved myself. I saw the world differently. It just was a, it was a paradigm shift in how I thought about things. I was like, great, you know? Um, but for me, you know, I'm, it, I mean, if someone gave me the opportunity to work on an MDMA study, I would sign up immediately. You know, if someone gave me the opportunity to, you know, sit in and observe, I, I would be there. Um, but for me, I would say the jury's still a little bit out in, in terms of like who this is appropriate for and how it should mm. be used and and what are the steps. Because I, I have seen and um, I'm trying to be careful in how I say this, but I have seen that, you know, certain people don't do well with MDMA, you know, really? certain. Really? I had not heard. Yeah. Yeah. That some people with uh, specific trauma histories, especially in not the right care, um, you know, mm -hmm. I've seen it act as a bit of a grenade. Okay. So I think it's a very, I'm not going to anthropomorphize it, but it's a smart medicine. Okay. It's, it seems to have the ability, I don't know how it, this happens chemically or biologically, but it seems to have the ability to go like straight to, and, and I think MDMA, I mean, some have said it's like a derivative of a sassafras, right? Um, but some, some have said, you know, it seems that it has the ability to go like almost straight to the source of the trauma, straight mm -hmm. to the source of someone's issues. If you don't have a lot of trauma, well, great. You're probably going to have a lovey, Debbie, you know, touchy feely time, you know, uh, but if you have had serious trauma, um, I think it can go as again before, like in a, one of two directions, either you are, you know, overcome with, uh, empathic, like self-love, love for others, connection, all that kind of thing. Or I have seen that it can kind of, uh, turn people quite inward, um, if they're not prepared for what they're seeing. Um, you know, and I've, I've, I've seen people re respond, uh, quite negatively. And, you know, if you read some of the stories, um, 
from the map studies, and I can't say that they're outliers, but you know, I would say the bulk of participants seem to be doing much, much better with MDMA, and this should be out there to help people, right? But there is a portion of participants that report almost as if they had open heart surgery, and then it was like they were never sewed back up after the surgery, mm. right? So it's like, mm. you know, I, it's like uh, you have the ability, like MDMA seems to have the ability to open people up, like crack people open. Mm -hmm but there need to be a bunch of people there to help uh, mm. kind of put some, you know, kind of do the work with that person to help them put themselves back together afterwards, you know? And when they put themselves back together, they may be way better. They may be way better off. They may be way cleaner. That may have been a great surgery, you know? Um, but I think sometimes it stops halfway through the surgery process. And that's what I'm worried about. Mm. And I'm worried about people that, um, are expecting like the lovey, dovey, touchy feely, everything's beautiful experience and end up in this, this experience. Um, and that's why I think it's really important, you know, that, um, there be a lot of support and care and follow up, um, around work with MDMA, um, because I think it is a very powerful medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And so I also kind of see it as neutral, kind of like, psilocybin mushrooms you know ketamine we say it veers towards the positive like it, yeah. it's you might have people having some negative experiences but it's innately kind of brings people towards positive mm -hmm. lenses um mushrooms you can go either way mm -hmm. lsd i mean you can go either way mm -hmm. uh and uh, you mm -hmm. know ayahuasca i don't know i mean i would even say maybe veers towards the negative i'm not sure you know i mean it's a neutral medicine it goes back and forth as well um, but yeah, MDMA, MDMA, I'm thinking more and more, uh, I think we're going to see more and more examples of people that go this way instead of this way. Um, yeah, well, that's, I'm really glad you talked about that. That's really interesting to me because I had not heard about that. And I've, you know, I've read a bunch on MDMA. I've experienced it several times in a therapeutic environment, etc. Um, and I've never heard of anyone having a, a negative experience. Not that I've made a study yeah. of that, obviously. Um, so this yeah. is really interesting. Um, so, so yeah. tell me if this is, <clears throat> if this is uh, somewhat inaccurate then. Um, uh, I, I've been under the understanding that the uh, conventional uh, view or um, understanding of how MDMA works, it's sort of a tripartite function, you might say. Um, it, um, uh, excuse me, as I understand it, and this is from what I've read from books like Gateway Through the Heart or Julie Holland's book on ecstasy, etc. Um, it seems to do several things together that work together. And one is that it um, knocks out the fear factor of looking, this is, we're maybe particularly talking about, P, you know, for PTSD. Um, uh, so, um, you know, you're the pro, I'm not, so excuse me if I don't get this quite right, but as I understand PTSD, it's, it's one of the most difficult uh, uh, conditions to treat because it can, mm -hmm. people either, you know, it, it's buried, they can't even look at it, or if they do, it can re-traumatize them, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So my understanding of how MDMA works in a therapeutic context is that it, it knocks out the fear factor of looking at the situation and concomitantly brings in uh, great compassion for yourself and for the situation. So you can look at it um, again without, you know, sort of being re-traumatized. And the third factor apparently is, well, apparently I know this to be true personally anyway, um, it, it keeps your mind clear and your recollection and your linear thinking clear so that you can actually talk about it with the therapist and remember it afterward. Unlike say, you know, a major psilocybin journey where, you know, so many things happen that you could, you know, you barely remember most of them because they're flying by so fast. So um, is that a simplistic uh, view of, of how MDMA functions? Um, I'm going to be, probably a lot of people will disagree with me, um, but I'm going to say, yeah. Um, I'm going to say that's how it works when it's working well, you know? Um, and I would say that's how it works for a lot of people. Um, I've also seen, um, and I, you know, I think if you ask MDMA researchers, you ask MDMA therapists directly, like, 
have you, you so is everybody really like in a not fear state like an mdma like have you ever had have people had tough experiences on mdma they'll tell you yes you know of course right like of course um the idea is that even if you you're in a state of terror okay that like it'll be less so you know um so you'll be more able to talk about it more able to process it you know I think maybe, I think, well, I think we've seen many examples um, in the MDMA research of it. Yeah, doing that for a lot of people, knocking out that fear factor. Um, but I've also seen uh, many examples in my own life of it uh, not, like, not totally knocking out that fear factor. And, uh, you know, it just depends on someone's trauma history. And it mm -hmm. depends on, on how... You know, if you if you're dealing with someone with severe trauma or has had multiple severe traumas in their life, I'm sorry, but like nothing's that simple. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it it's it is it is it quicker and better than without it? Probably. You know, yeah, I would say so. I would say I would put my money on that. You know, um, but is it um is it um instant and is it an instant miracle cure yeah for some people probably you know and so that's why it should be available i just want to caution that it's not like that for everybody because i've seen multiple examples where um it hasn't worked like that for people um you know so it's just it's just we have to be my sense is we have to be careful we have to treat it like a it, it's a it's a powerful medicine you know mm -hmm. um yeah really one that should be yeah i i just you know, I'm, I guess I'm fortunate to know many people that, um, I have a lot of friends, colleagues that have had incredible experiences on MDMA changed their life. I've seen so many clients it's changed their life. I mean, the studies are, it's hard to refute all the research that's coming out of maps, you know, um, even if there's some issues with it, like over by and large, you know, there's a, there, there are a lot of good data, um, in those studies. Um, at the same time, you know, we also need to be realistic that there are going to be people, but I, I know, I know many people that haven't had those kinds of experiences. Um, I've also known people, you know, that have tried to take, I've had clients that have tried to take MDMA on, um, while they're on antidepressants, obviously not under my direction. Um, and they have no experience, you know, because of, you know, different serotonin interactions, you know, uh, mm -hmm. kind of blockages. Um, so yeah, I'm not to belabor the point, but I would just say it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Yeah. There's darkness there as well, as well, you know? Yeah. No, I've not heard that, so I really appreciate hearing that. Um, so coming back to ketamine for a moment, if I may, because I know it's a major focus yeah. for you in your work as well. Um, yeah. uh, I want to ask you, uh, actually, this was not a question I was going to ask you, but I, I want to ask it now anyway. Um, uh, someone I know <clears throat> um, who's been on uh, SSRIs for many years would would kind of like to get off them if possible. Um, mm -hmm. And I mentioned ketamine. Uh, has shown some promise with uh, depression, um, and mm -hmm. her first question was, uh, "Is there a contra are there contraindications?" So I looked that up and uh, mm -hmm. got information from Yale Medical, for example, Yale Medicine. Um, John Crystal, I think, head of chief Psych chief psychiatrist at Yale Medicine, said, uh, uh, "In a general sense, no." There are some situations, um, and um, I think it's SNRIs that uh, cause uh, something like an increased heart rate or some heart problems with some people, but limited usually. Um, so uh, I'm just wondering, uh, would you agree that essentially there's no serious concern about contraindication? In fact, uh, I think it was this John Crystal guy, uh, either that or somebody from the University of California, uh, San Francisco, who said, they actually encourage people who come in for ketamine treatment to stay on their um, mm -hmm. their medication during the treatment period. So do you have a, any um, relevant comments about that? Sure. I mean, I'm not a medical doctor, but, you know, I worked at a ketamine company for two years and leadership there. And uh, we had a lot of discussions about this and uh, the research and, and data seemed to show that it's uh, that uh, there aren't uh, serious concerns about being on antidepressants um, whilst on ketamine. And 
it's kind of one of those psychedelic it's one of the if you if you allow it to be included in the psychedelic category you know it's one of the psychedelics that you can be on several medications um without serious uh interactions or issues um and that's why it can be um a really realistic uh medicine for a lot of people that wouldn't be able to like if i mean you know from like my from any work that i've done with ayahuasca uh, over the last couple of years, like it's very clear, you know, that, uh, people need to be off antidepressants, uh, before using ayahuasca or there, there can be potential serious consequences. Um, with, um, you know, psilocybin mushrooms, I think, um, they're still trying to find real data on whether there is issue, an issue with like serotonin syndrome, which is mm -hmm. kind of the, always the cited concern. Um, and same with MDMA, you know, and in, in from what I've observed anecdotally, and this isn't medical advice, you know, it's it's that it just seems to blunt the experience, you know, um, more for people, you know, and I think they need to do research to show whether there really are like long term effects or more serious yeah. effects from that. But with ketamine, yeah, people can, you know, I have uh, even people with like seizure medications um, with uh um, antidepressants uh, coming in. Um, usually, you know, we would, um, like the medical team in ketamine care would recommend um, uh, people, at least, at least for my patients that I've done therapy with, um, might recommend that they're off their stimulant medication, like, you know, if they're on ADHD medication, that they're off any like benzodiazepines or anti-anxiety um, kind of drugs. Um, that there's certain things you take a break from. We even recommend we when I was at field trip, we even recommended people stay off of cannabis for 40 hours mm -hmm. uh, front and back, um, just so that people had a, you know, it seemed to mute the experience. It seemed to mute the experience and also the memory memories. Um, and yeah. so um, that's it. But yeah, it can be. I mean, I when I have clients that are. Um, have been on antidepressants for a long time and uh, seem interested in breaking off of them, but are afraid, you know, of the potential impacts of depression coming back, things like that, or, or, you know, unknown consequences of getting off of them. Um, it seems that ketamine is, is a, is a, is being used. It's a kind of a, a, being seen as a safe way to proceed. I mean, I, I, I recently had uh, someone I was working with that I cleared through psychiatry, neurology, uh, family doctors, nurses, you know, because I just wanted to make sure we're all clear, you know, on all fronts. And everybody said, yeah, should be fine, you know, should be fine. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it seems to be a very safe, safe medicine. That's good to hear. So um, I'm not sure, uh, <clears throat> you know, if you feel like you have the knowledge to speak about this part of it but this is really important for people in that situation as well so the the uh, the follow-up question i had several uh, email exchanges with this person that i mentioned and uh, her next question was um so what about after because uh, you know as as i understand it anyway it's really difficult uh, to get off of ssris you for one thing, have to go really, really slowly. Um, and then, you know, people are worried about that they'll, you know, without that, without that drug in them, they're going to fall back into depression again. So um, does ketamine uh, have any impact on the trajectory of how you can get off your SSRI afterward? Do you know about that? It's a really good question. And I would say, um, one thing I often ask people that, you know, come in to see me that have been on antidepressants for, let's say, five years um, that are very depressed is I say, is it working for you? Like, you know, the, if they're afraid to get off of it, I say, are, is it keeping you from depression right now? And they might say, no, it's not keeping mm. me from depression. Okay. So, like, let's just say the hypothesis that your antidepressant isn't helping you. Okay. Because it's not keeping you from depression, which is the point of an antidepressant, right? You know, so if it's not keeping you from depression, likely it's not keeping you from depression. And so the idea of de depression rebounding afterwards is, I would say, unlikely, less likely because you're already depressed, right? So it's the other things that people struggle with coming off of antidepressants, you know, um, you know, 
shakes, jitters, uh, problems sleeping, um, you know, uh, cold sweats, uh, anxiety. Um, like I've seen a number of different reactions to SSRI withdrawal. It's, you know, a whole syndrome now, um, officially, um, the longer that someone has been on an antidepressant, the harder it can be, the higher the dose, the harder it can be. Um, and so I think that, you know, as a society, we really need to start looking at all of the people that have been on antidepressants for 20 years, 25 years, or even 30 years. I mean, I've, I've seen people that have been on antidepressants for like 34 years, believe it or not, since like the the dawn of antidepressants. Um, mm -hmm. And when they were originally prescribed and people seem to forget this, um, it was said, this is supposed to be something that you're using for six months to a year with the help of a doctor or a therapist to help you, you know, to kind of give you the state of mind to work through your issues Um and then you can get off of the antidepressant. So originally when they were being marketed, and that that was in the, like the late 90s, um, early 2000s, that's what people were supposed to do. It was like, you're on it for a short time, you're working with someone, it's supposed to help you kind of pull you out of your funk to be able to do that. And then the idea is to wean off quickly. Um, but something happened along the line where people just started prescribing antidepressants, forgetting all the therapy part, forgetting the care part, for getting the changing anything in your life part and just seeing it as like a, a daily, <clears throat> a daily thing that you just have to do to keep at where you're at. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a really, it's a whole mindset, like a societal mindset about these things and more and more research is coming out over the last many, you know, many years, really since the early two thousands about how, um, <clears throat> except in the cases of severe depression, you know, a lot of antidepressants can function as a placebo, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of people are like, you know what? This isn't helping with my depression. This isn't helping with my panic attacks. I don't even want to be on this. I don't want this thing, you know? Um, so, I mean, antidepressants help who they help and they really don't help who they don't help. Mm -hmm. um, and so for the people that they really don't help and who want to get off of them, sometimes I would say, I think we haven't done enough research on this, if any. Um, but I would say that ketamine, something like ketamine, something like psilocybin mushrooms, if done in the proper context, proper uh, scenario with proper support, um, could potentially help someone get into the mindset where they would be able to see themselves getting off of a substance like that. And not only that, but in that process of lifting, being able to integrate the self-care behaviors like exercise, like spending time with people they love, like good sleep habits, like, um, you know, good hobbies, good work-life balance that will allow them the foundation, like the structural foundation to be able to deal effectively with any withdrawal symptoms that begin when they start to get off of the antidepressants. Because mm -hmm. people can get through it, but it takes a solid foundation of like, okay, I'm ready. I, I've got my skills. I've got my coping skills. I know this is going to be tough for a period. Maybe it's going to be tough for six months. Maybe it's going to be tough for a year, but I'm going to get through it and I'm going to be okay on the other side, you know? Nice. So I think could, <clears throat> could psychedelics kickstart that process? I think so, mm -hmm. you know, but, but I, again, we need to show, show this in research. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a lot more we could talk about. Excuse me a second. <clears throat> um, but um, I think this might be a good place to wrap it up, despite the fact that I, there was a few things we didn't get to, including, uh, I think you indicated before we got on the recording uh, that you've been focused a lot on the scalability of uh, psychedelic therapy and stuff like that. I don't know, maybe uh, I, I do need to wrap this up actually from my end, uh, but maybe yeah. uh, do you think you could squeeze it down to like 49 words or less, like how we're doing on the scalability, <laughs> the scalability issue? <laughs> yeah, I would like the things about the scalability issue is I would say, um, if you find yourself doing well in the psychedelics space, you know, and you want to expand, um, I always ask people a couple questions first, which is, you know, why do you want to expand? You know, is it to help more people? Is it to, um, is it to reach more people? Is it related to accessibility 
or is it related to some other objective like money, you know, ego, whatever, you know? Um, and because I find that when, when people are doing something really well and they're really helping people and they start to expand, that's a natural expansion. That's a natural scaling. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's going to happen. Um, you know, and that's something that can be encouraged. Um, but when people are struggling with even the, maybe the business or the situation that they have, they're not helping that many people, or maybe they're just looking to get big for the sake of getting big. I think that's, a it's, a it's something that will eventually collapse, you know, um, or eventually shrink, uh, because it's not, um, held by any solid, um, or strong foundation of, uh, of intentionality, uh, and care and compassion. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it's hard to sum it into 49 words, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, 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 I think I help people with thinking through, um, the whys, the whys of scalability, um, and then uh, and then the hows, um, depending on the answer. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. I know that was sort of unfair to ask you to summarize work you've been That's doing okay. for quite a while. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so before we go, uh, is there anything? So this is going to go on YouTube and on some of the audio platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all that. So is there anything that a viewer or listener you would like them to check out, uh, uh, you know, to follow up with some of these ideas? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, I have a website. Uh, it's, uh, you know, one I made myself. So <laughs> that being said, uh, it's D, uh, drmorisano.com, D-R-M-O-R-I-S-A-N-O.com. Uh, um, and also, um, I'm going to be teaching a course uh, with Fluence uh, coming up in March on uh, the foundations of psychedelic therapy, like psychological approaches. Um, and uh, I am going to be um, doing some work with Beckley Retreats um, in Jamaica um, uh, around uh, working with uh, people with uh, psilocybin mushrooms and uh, um, providing some support around that. Uh, so um, these are some things people can check out. I've been on a couple podcasts on psychedelics today, one on celebrating women in psychedelics. Um, those are where I talk more about things I'm interested in. So I really appreciate you having me uh, today on the show. Well, you're a font of excellent information. I really appreciate it. Um, so if people are interested in some of these workshops or retreats, they can find out through your website? Yeah, and also um, I would encourage people to look at the um, website from our conference from last year. Uh, it's only about eight months or probably only about six, six months old. It's from researchtoreality.com. And we have open access videos of the entire conference. Um, it's it's a pretty wonderful thing. And so I encourage people to check those out as well. Great. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Stephen.